Hello and welcome to The Entrepreneurs with me, Tom Edwards. On this week's program, we meet Carl Pei, the CEO and co-founder of Nothing, the tech company at the cutting edge of innovation. Conflict is healthy. If everybody has the same ultimate goal of creating this really cool, iconic brand, we're all arguing because we want to make the company as successful as possible. Then we'll head to Berlin to hear from the co-founder of a startup dedicated to solving the world's biggest challenge by extracting CO2 from the atmosphere. We can't do everything with direct air capture. This would just not compute. Cutting emissions, there is no way around this. Insights from the forefront of innovation in electronics and in environmental engineering. Coming up today on The Entrepreneurs with me, Tom Edwards. A warm welcome to this week's edition of The Entrepreneurs. Carl Pei is the young tech entrepreneur behind Nothing, the London-based tech company whose mission is to remove barriers between people and technology. The plan for doing this, as we shall hear, is to craft intuitive, connected products that improve lives and never get in the way. Carl Pei, welcome to The Entrepreneurs. Let's start with a bit about you. Despite your tender years, you're a serially successful entrepreneur. Where did that instinct, I wonder, for starting, for growing businesses come from? As a kid, even, were you one of those youngsters that was always fired by a bit of entrepreneurial zeal? I felt like I didn't really fit in, but I couldn't really pinpoint to the reason. But now thinking back, I was I was actually quite weird. Um <laughs> I remember being really interested in technology. My parents were quite busy at work, so they bought me a computer with broadband connection, like really early on. I was probably just 12 back then. So I kind of grew up on the internet. I also got access to a lot of tech products. My parents gave me a Walkman really early on. I was making my own mixtapes. And um, later on when the iPod came out, I was like the first kid I knew with the iPod, generation one. Uh, <laughs> first in my school, at least. I had a relative, my uncle, he worked at Nokia and then Motorola. So I would get the latest um, hand-me-down phones all the time. So I was really spending a lot of time online, spent a lot of time on forums, on online communities. I was designing themes for my phones back then. Not even smartphones, you know, the feature phones. I was in theme competitions and won some, actually. So it's not kind of normal kid behavior, I guess, at least from when I was younger. So I wouldn't say I really wanted to be a CEO or start a company, but I was really kind of passionate about these tech products, about the internet. I always tried all the new services immediately when Twitter just launched, when YouTube just launched, when Facebook just launched, when blogs became a thing, I had my own WordPress blog, etc. I was chatting with uh, Monocle's tech correspondent. And he said, look, within the industry, you know, the close observers are, are super impressed with nothing. And one of the things they all point to is the strength of the design team mm -hmm. and the design ethos. Talk to us a bit about what that ethos is and how do you ensure that everybody buys into the ethos, which presumably is something that you personally are very adamant about setting. Uh, I think we're a lot more democratic and collaborative as a company than it might seem. Our design does stand out, and I think the rock stars behind our design is actually our design team. As you may know, we have a collaboration with Teenage Engineering. They're one of our founding partners, and I work very closely with Jesper there. Jesper is where a lot of our creative vision actually comes from. We're almost organized like a fashion brand in that we have a creative director, and whatever they, the creative director says, everyone else has to kind of just follow. This way you ensure that each touch point with the consumer is sort of consistent. Mm -hmm. So that no matter if you're looking at our 
store in Soho or our products or our office or our customer support or our website or our software, everything feels considered and it feels like a part of the same brand. And then we couple that with really, really strong engineering and supply chain to bring that vision out to millions of people across the world. And that's really interesting because I guess there may be some observers who would perceive there might be a clash between functionality, effectiveness of products and this idea of putting brand and identity mm -hmm. and creative direction at the heart. But you seem to have married those two things up very elegantly. Is there ever a, a conflict between those? Because it's interesting, even if you look at the product, it, it does stand out in an increasingly homogenized marketplace mm. of, oh, it's just a black box, whether it's the lights, which is a very immediate and striking and a visual differentiator. Mm -hmm. do, do you find there's a conflict between, I guess, well, form and function almost? Yeah, there's a lot of... Uh... And it's healthy, I think. Conflict is healthy. If everybody has the same ultimate goal of creating this really cool, iconic, perhaps even generational brand, there's a lot of conflicts internally. We're all arguing because we want to make the company as successful as possible and not necessarily for politics or any other reason. Mm -hmm. So it's a classic case, you know, design and engineering. They never get along. Engineering, they want to ship on time. Design team just wants to make it as perfect as possible, their version of perfection. So in terms of the glyph interface that we talked about, it's visually striking, but we got a lot of feedback from our consumers that they get it, but how can it be more useful? How is it more than just lights on the back of a phone? So there's a constant challenge there, and it also has to do with our capability. Going back to being a quite a young brand, we're still building up our engineering capabilities. So we have a lot of cool ideas on how we make the Glyph interface more functional, more empowering to your day-to-day -day life, but it takes time to execute and create all those features and functionalities. And it's interesting, I think there is a real sense amongst close watchers of the tech space and these these specific consumer products about the refreshing nature of your approach to Android, greater functionality. How do the big established players react to you? Are they threatened by you? Do they like the fact that you're mixing things up, mm -hmm. maybe forcing them to, to be a bit more innovative? What's the response been from the, the big monsters in the space? I think the biggest guys, they don't really care because <laughs> we're just so tiny and so small. And some of the kind of mid-level guys have been trying to make life hard for us in the supply chain or talking shit to us with the media. But I don't think it, it matters. You know, I think there's a life cycle to every company. There's a startup phase, there's a maturity phase, a decline phase. Sometimes a company, when they start declining, they find a second life, like what Microsoft has recently found. And sometimes they don't, but ultimately all companies have a beginning and, and an end. So we're a very young company, and I think the best days for us are ahead of us. And for some of these big companies, maybe you know their best days have passed. As we build up our capabilities and put more of our ideas into the world, hopefully we can also get more traction and become one of those big guys. When that kind of shithousery happens, how do you remain sanguine? Because it, it must bother you, I guess, particularly if it's a bit personal or if they're trying to cast out or make the day-to-day -day running that makes your team's job more difficult that must be really frustrating how do you kind of rise above it i i believe you do you seem fairly philosophical about it but does it require you to have that discipline to say don't rise to it don't be antagonized eyes on the prize that kind of thing or is it just a bit little bit about i don't know maybe escaping from the office or how, how do you make sure that you you don't get peaked or, or irritated by that kind of stuff i think i'm lucky enough to have had a lot of hard times in my past career so i've i've had to deal with very painful situations. So I think the simple answer is the more shit you go through, the less you feel it, the less it bothers you. So I think I'm in a very different state of mind today than compared to two and a half years ago when we just started. So uh, you just got to go through those difficult periods and things always get better, always get easier. Things that seem really serious at that time 
looking back, it wasn't much. Let's talk about your favorite parts of processes. I mean, if you're working on a new product, what's the most thrilling part of it? Is it that moment when you actually get to see consumers engaging with the product? Tell us a bit. I think the moment when you are just out in the city and you see somebody using your product, that's really exciting. It means like it has an impact on other people's lives. I think for me, increasingly seeing the team grow, not in size necessarily, but in terms of expertise, we're getting better, we're getting stronger. I think that's really satisfying because the source of everything we do comes from from the quality of our team. And I guess when you're planning something that's a little bit naughty, um, that's going to kind of annoy the big guys. And just, just that, you know, just wait until we launch that. That feeling is also quite enjoyable. So you're happy to be a little bit antagonistic to some of these? I think we have to. You know, yeah. we're a very small company, small brand, so we have to be a challenger. And we're challenging huge giants and a huge industry, so we have to be a bit antagonistic, I think. Challenger mindset. Well, to that point, what about risk appetite and risk management? Because I guess you have to probably take more risks being a relatively smaller player. How do you explain to your colleagues what their attitude towards risk should be? Because it is a constant feature on this program when we talk to all sorts of entrepreneurs, whether they're in fashion or tech, or whatever it might be, about how they calibrate risk appetites. What's your sort of attitude towards risk, would you say, Carl? I think you have to be smart about it and take a step-by-step approach. And I think it impacts our business much more than other types of businesses because, for instance, a smartphone costs probably 30 to $40 million to develop. So you can't risk the product not working. So that means you got to really cover the basic experience really well. So with the Nothing Phone 1, we just had to make sure the basic smartphone experience was really good. Battery life, display, camera, and all that. And then we can innovate on top. We can, we can take a 20% risk with the Glyph interface on the back. But we can't risk the majority of the product. What if we you know, invest $40 million in developing the product and it flops completely, then we're screwed. And as a company, one of our core values is survive. It sounds really scary. It sounds really weird for some of our new joiners. Like, what's going on? Are we going bankrupt? Why is there a core value called survive? But I think that's kind of a mindset we always have to keep in mind as we build a company. You can have the biggest vision in the world. You can have the best idea, the best people. But if you no longer have a company anymore, then you don't have a chance to accomplish your dreams. Well, I guess a corollary question then would be, what happens when it doesn't work? Because even in a very successful launch, like with Nothing Phone 1, presumably there have been lots of challenges along the way, maybe some pretty big and expensive, costly, Mm -hmm. whether they're errors, circumstance. You mentioned you can't necessarily be in control of the vagaries of global Mm -hmm. supply chains and so forth. Again, how do you process problems? Are there particular errors, mistakes that have informed your career that you think actually have even had a net positive impact despite how problematic they've been? Yeah, I think for me, it's been a, it's just been a very steep learning curve throughout the last 10, 15 years. I made a lot of mistakes and just keep learning. You know, when you're facing a problem, try and control what you can control. If it's almost fatal, see if you can recover. And if it's really fatal, then, then just move on. And tell me, with, with previous ventures, if we, if we go back to things mm-hmm. like, you know, OnePlus, you move on from them. In your mind, is it a question of taking the best aspects and the best learnings obviously everybody does this to a degree but or is it trying to figure out the things that didn't maybe work out the way that you'd wanted you know with with one enterprise and trying to tackle the new one differently maybe it's a bit of both those things yeah i think at oneplus i learned a lot about execution speed and engineering we're quite strong with engineering our hardware was great the software was great and i think something that i felt was lacking was creativity and innovation so with this new venture, Nothing, we focus a lot more on the creativity side. 
how do we build a really strong design team, a strong design culture? How do we build a culture of tech and R&D into our DNA? I think it's already starting to show in our products that you know the output is is it's different from from the past. And can you use the same principles and rigor when you're scaling the business if you've changed that emphasis because I guess there may be some you know, the nuts and bolts, the mechanics of scaling a consumer tech product. But then if you've got this different emphasis on a slightly more nebulous concept about, Mm -hmm. you know, design ethos and creativity and innovation, can you scale that in the same way? Do you need to call on different points of reference, maybe grow the team in a different way to understand how most effectively to scale retaining those core values? So if we focus more on design, that means that design team will have more power within the organization and engineering sometimes has less power. And actually, that makes engineering stronger because the design team will want to realize something really difficult to realize, and the engineers will say, no, this is not possible. So they start fighting, and then in the end, the engineers still have to go and figure it out. This way, they grow and learn much faster. So I see nothing but positive in in doing this. It's harder, for sure, especially in the short term, but it makes the team so much stronger. I love that positive tension. Yeah. So who's the referee? That's you, Carl, is it? Who has to step um, in sometimes and say, come on, children, play nicely in the sandbox. Is it a bit of that? I try to not be. I try to have <laughs> other people be the referee. But okay. in the end, if I have to, I, I will. But I think it's okay to be the referee in the beginning. But if you're always the referee, then you fail to build a team. Well, and to that point, what about delegation then? Does, does that come easily? I think if you've had a lot of success early and pretty consistent success, does that I don't know. I wonder, maybe that makes it easier in some ways to, to lighten your, your hold on the reins. Or does it make it more difficult? Are you someone who wants to still be across every decision and keeping a hand on the tiller? How do you how do you manage that process? I think a successful leader is one that's not present. And it doesn't mean you chill, but it means your influence is everywhere, but you don't have to be involved in any decision. So that's how I tried to build it from the beginning. And I think the key is then to focus on aligning people on the high level vision, mission, values, and principles. What are our product principles? What are our design principles? What are our branding principles? If we have really, really tight alignment on that, then the team can kind of run really freely and do whatever they want because they're kind of operating within that framework that we already designed together. Mm, That's interesting. And on this point about purpose, uh, mission, is is that difficult to navigate? Because I guess this is a bit of a generalization, Carl, mm-hmm. but you know, tech often gets a bit of a bad rap in terms of doom and gloom narratives around sustainability. We know about precious metals market and so forth. And I think there is a very different conversation even mm-hmm. now, probably even just from when nothing started about yep. how we need to be more holistic in our approach to supply chains and sustainability and so forth. But what do you what do you make of that? Do you still feel that you're doing so much more net good than bad, even allowing for some of those challenging aspects of the sector? I think it's kind of why we started. I like how you said it's tech is more doom and gloom these days, and that wasn't the case. Like when I was younger, when I bought the iPod, when I bought the first iPhone, when I started using YouTube and all those services, it felt like tech was on a very different trajectory. Society was looking forward to these tech companies making life better. And sometime in the last 10 years, the narrative has completely shifted and changed. Today, the tech companies are like the oil and gas companies of the past. It's data privacy issues, uh, sustainability issues. There's antitrust issues. Governments around the world are challenging the tech companies. Uh, tech companies have been making more and more uninspiring products. That's kind of what sparked us wanting to start this company in the first place. But I do think now it's a lot harder running a business now than maybe 20, 30 years ago. 
perhaps 30 years ago, you know, you just had to care about your shareholders and your profits. But now I think business is much more holistic in terms of all your stakeholders, the environment, uh, government, consumers, investors, etc. So we have to fight on multiple planes compared to before when things were simpler, I think. And how do you ensure you win that battle? Is it a little bit about working on your corporate narrative, your storytelling? Is that something that you are aware you constantly need to be be thinking about? Not just making a great product. You can literally see consumers enjoying it, the product mm-hmm. and it doing its job. But are you mindful that you have to tell the story in, in constantly in fresh ways? I think the story is just the, the final step. It shouldn't be the first step. What I mean is like you can't put lipstick on a pig. If your business is not a good business, you can't just try and greenwash it or tell a story around it. So I think you got to be really honest and take really solid steps to lay a very strong foundation. Mm-hmm. So if we take sustainability as an example, we don't communicate that much around sustainability, but we've worked really hard under the hood on learning about sustainability and actually implementing that into our supply chain. From the week we first founded, we've had a weekly sustainability meeting within the company. In the beginning, it was just to explore what can we do. But over time, we're actually doing a lot more. And we're learning and and iterating our our thinking. So with our first product, the Year One, we purchased green energy certificates for our factory. So we neutralized the energy portion of the production. So that reduced the carbon footprint. And then with the remaining carbon footprint, we bought carbon credits to neutralize the remaining. So it was a carbon neutral product. But then after learning more about sustainability, I figured out that that wasn't the right approach because that's the easy way out again. Just buying carbon credits, you just pay money and it's done. You don't really have to innovate on your product. You don't have to innovate on your supply chain. So then with the phone one, we took a big step forward. We stopped buying the credits, but we focused more on the materials and the supply chain. So the real product, 100% of the aluminum used on the phone is recycled and more than half of the plastics are recycled. And then in our future generation product, we're taking a big step forward again. The amount of recycled material in our products has increase drastically. So again, it's a good lesson. Focus on the fundamentals and yeah. put your own house in order and, yeah. then, and then worry about structuring yeah. structuring your, your narratives. Is there a single best piece of advice that you've ever received? I don't know if it's a best piece of advice, but I remember something that comes to mind very often is, you know, I had a landlord probably in 2008 who took me to dinner in his car and he said, you know what? To save money is to waste money and to waste money is to save money. Look, I bought this car 20 years ago. I still love my car. I bought a really expensive car. It was the most expensive car I could afford, but I'm still driving it. I'm still happy. If I had bought a cheaper car, I would have needed to replace my car every three years. So over a 20 year period, I still come out ahead. And this lesson just kind of came back to me recently because sometimes we compromise in terms of talent and we put the wrong type of talent or not good enough talent on on a task. And recently, one of those decisions has made us lose tens of millions of dollars, maybe $20 million. So that's much more than what it costs to just hire somebody good. So we tried to save money, but we ended up wasting money. Smart landlord. Yeah. (laughs) You still got that car? I don't know. We haven't been in touch. (laughs) You you need to reach out. Um, What's next on the agenda? What are you most excited about? What thrills you? What excites you as you look ahead? And you can have any time horizon you want, Mm. Carl. I mean, very soon we have a new product coming to the market, the year two. It's our second pro-level audio product. Our team has gotten so much stronger since the first one, so a lot stronger on the engineering especially. So it's going to be a really, really good product. So I hope the market will react positively to that. And I think the thing that I'm most excited about is just to see there's so many ideas we want to put out in the market, but it all depends on the team we have. So to see that team keep growing stronger.
Very good. Uh, and finally, in terms of your own inspiration, it sounds like you you provide and take inspiration in equal measure from your team, which is growing and, and uh, setting all these new new goals and, and meeting them indeed. What does the constant search for inspiration look like? Is it books, films, some of your stories? I wonder, you know, get mm -hmm. raiding the Bruce Lee archive, whatever it might be. Where, where do you go for that? Is it is it almost about trying to get out of work mode for a second mm -hmm. and find that somewhere else? Is it food? Is it a certain place you go, people that you meet? Where does that come from for you? Uh, it comes a little bit from everywhere. Before starting nothing, I read a lot of books, maybe 30 books a year. But since starting, I've only read like in the last two and a half years, probably only one or two books. Um, <laughs> but I also found with, with age and with more experience, you become more confident. You come to conclusions or ideas yourself. And you find that, or I found that some of my childhood heroes, they're still great people. But after meeting them or after spending time with them or after understanding them, more deeply, they're just humans. After all, we're, we all have our flaws. So I think that revelation has made me more confident in myself. Carl Pei, thank you very much indeed. That was Carl Pei, the man behind nothing. And you can learn more about the ways that Carl and his colleagues are challenging the status quo by heading to nothing.tech. And this very day, Nothing has more exciting news for you. Their new Ear 2 wireless earbuds went live today. Find out more at their website. You're listening to The Entrepreneurs. From the world of innovation in communications technology to more engineering marvels, this time focused on the battle to address the urgent climate crisis. This week, the scientific body that advises the United Nations on climate change released a new report which delivered a stark warning about the need for massive and immediate action on global warming. But a global problem requires political cooperation, will and fast response. While governments are slow to act, entrepreneurs and engineers are working hard and coming up with solutions all the time. Rene Haas is the co-founder of NeoCarbon, a startup that's devised a way to dramatically cut the costs of direct air capture of carbon, leveraging cooling towers around Europe. I'm delighted to say he joins me from Berlin now. Rene, thank you for coming on the show. It's great to meet you. I've interviewed a few people before in the direct air capture space, so I have a little bit of familiarity with how the process of taking CO2 from the atmosphere works. But can you tell us a bit, first of all, about your approach? When you look at, at our technology, what, what we do, basically, we build a machine, which you can imagine like a, like a big box. This machine, we, we attach to the airflow and the waste heat of a cooling tower because the general direct air process works like this. You blow a massive amount of air through your unit. You can imagine it as gigantic boxes. Within the box, there is a sorbent, a chemical. This chemical absorbs the CO2 after yeah, a certain time, depending on your material, roughly 60 minutes, it's saturated. What you then do, you close your box, you heat it up, and then you release the CO2 as a pure stream. And then you sequester it, meaning you store it somewhere underground or you can put it into concrete or yeah, put it away from the air. This process is very energy intense and it's very costly. And our idea is that instead of building everything from scratch, that's built on the ground field. So we don't need to like have even more industrial regions within the world, but we piggyback on an already existing um, region, which means we have no groundwork. So that's a huge cost driver. But also when you think of the cooling tower, which we are retrofitting, we have already massive amounts of air, which they are circulating and 
there is a lot of energy which is normally wasted because a cooling tower is basically a simple hey here is waste heat that is just evaporated because i don't need it for my process and i need to get rid of it so there are huge advantages in leveraging those and actually what is interesting you would think of hey the waste heat market is, is going down and down because everything gets more and more efficient but actually the opposite is right because we produce more and more and more and more people worldwide become wealthy we, we produce even more goods we need even more energy and so the market for for waste heat is even growing and um, yeah then we calculated the the potential of that and realized okay actually is enormous and you can have like a massive impact if you would retrofit um for for carbon removal from there on we we developed the idea and now um yeah working on the next product iteration to really build a physical unit and not only uh, simulations and models. Yeah, it's fascinating. And what do you say? Because I guess some critics, Renee, say, well, look, you know, th this is incredible technology. It's obviously very effective despite its high cost base. But the problem with carbon is we actually need to address the production in the first instance. And actually, the more that we have direct air capture tech, that's almost a disincentive to try and reduce that increase energy demand. Do you give any credence to that that logic? Or actually, do you just think that we need the direct air capture technology and that's the end of the story? We can't do everything with, with direct air capture. This would just not compute. Cutting emissions, there, there is no way around this. And that's actually even cheaper than direct air capture. And when you think of also the, the energy demand of, of direct air capture on a global scale, but due to the years, I really looked at the, at the energy market. I, I studied it, I worked in it. And when you see big industry players and the politicians, they move very, very slow. And not only Europe, but also when you look at other countries like, like, like well, also in the in more Asian um, region, they move very, very slow. They don't cut their emissions. So we will actually never achieve those like peak emissions, which we need to achieve, I think, in the next two years. <laughs> when you imagine that the average coal plant in, in Asia is like 12 years old or something like this. Um, so very, very young with a lifetime expect to be 40, 50 years. So we will actually emit more and more and more. So that I think we are, as humanity, we are too slow in really cutting our emissions. That's why direct air capture is more and more needed. Yeah, and what's powerful about your, your business logic, your rationale, is to address both this big ambition, the urgency of the challenge, but also some, some pragmatism. To that point, where do you see the key growth areas? Are there particular geographies that are key growth areas for you? Are there particular markets? How do you see the growth story for Neocarbon unfolding? I don't know, if we look at, say, a, a five or 10-year or time horizon. It's very hard to say because it's very early days of the of the company, but we see a huge demand um, from the US. There we see a huge interest and um, especially uh, the politicians like Inflation Reduction Act in the US really makes a difference. And you can really see how, how people demand that technology. We also feel a lot of demand from India. So those would be the countries I could potentially imagine would be our um, growth areas, especially when we when we go international. And our idea is also that we go with a licensing model. So we want to develop tech. We want to create new technology. We want to run it in our core market, which will be yeah, somewhere in Central Europe. Germany, we're based now, but depending really a bit on regulations and where we can find sites, it might be also other countries like the UK or, or maybe even Norway. And then scaling more international, globally, um, via licensing model and with those partners, because at the end, it's a lot about manufacturing. And this is something you, as a startup, you don't want to do. And there are other people that have this network already. So ideally, you expand with big partners because the scale we need is also so big 
that it's very hard to do this just as a as a startup even if you have hundreds of millions it's it's still quite small when you compare the big machinery you need to build well yeah and so presumably one of the critical aspects of developing both your business and scalable and impactful solutions in this space is collaborating tell us a little bit about that process and how critical is that to serving the the wider ambitions that you and your colleagues have so in general, of course, to solve the climate crisis, um, everybody needs to work together. We as a startup, we really focus on our product development and really have to be careful where to engage what. But actually, we're part of a lot of initiatives and really believe in, in working together and collaborating together. So we engage in a lot of places developing this space because the interesting bit about it is the enormous market. Like nearly no one cracked it at a big scale. So that's the thing I really like about this market. It's not so much about fighting for shares. It's more like, okay, everybody has a, has a common vision and let's see what comes out of it. That was Rene Haas, co-founder and CEO of NeoCarbon. And you can learn more about Rene and the team by heading to neocarbon.tech. And that's all for this episode of The Entrepreneurs. We'll be back next week at the same time. And do look out for Eureka in the meantime, coming your way this Friday. The programme was produced by Laura Kramer with mixing and editing by Jack Dewars. Listen again and find out more about the show at monocle.com. Don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine while you're there. And you can follow us and catch up with the archive via your preferred podcast platform. To contact the team here, just email Laura. She's on lrk at monocle.com. I'm Tom Edwards. Goodbye, and thanks for listening to The Entrepreneurs.